Good morning. The scripture is Isaiah 2, 3 through 5. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All right, good morning. Everybody all right? Good, 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 good. Okay. I, uh, uh, my family's been really sick for a couple of weeks. Not anymore. We're just got all just stuff hanging out. So I'm, I'm a little two things. I'm a little brain foggy. And I'm a little fragile, like a couple of the songs just made me cry a lot. So I'm going to go easy this morning. And, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a heavy topic. Um, uh, all this time in bed has given me lots of news to watch and lots of pundits and theologians and all kinds of people spouting off about their thoughts about what should happen in the Middle East. And what should be going on? And, and, and as I'm listening to all this, I hear a lot of things that I'm like, well, you didn't learn that from Jesus. You didn't learn that. From, you especially didn't learn that from Jesus. And people are just throwing Bible verses around and stuff to, to justify the killing of people. So um, we're going to talk about war for a few minutes. And, and to be fair, like to be totally honest with you, this may be one of those Sundays where you find out, oh, Tommy believes things a little different than I do. And I hope you think that, hope, hope you're okay with that. I mean, it's fine with me. <laughs> um, and also, on top of that, last time I preached about nonviolence and war, we lost like 30 people pretty quick. So I, I, I don't expect messages against our most primal urge to kill. I, I don't expect messages like this to connect well with everybody. But I, I do expect you to hear the words of Jesus. And I do expect you to receive them and, and at, least, at least ponder them and wrestle with them. Um, and so, yeah... I, it might be a little intense. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to be cool. Uh, let's pray, and then let's, let's jump into this passage. Um, I tried to even trim it down a bit. I, 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 cut a, I cut a page out because I just wanted it to be very focused. So it may be a little shorter, and it may be a little pointed. And if you want to talk about it, let me know. As always, uh, if you hear something you don't like and you want to talk about it, instead of emailing me, like, let's talk. Like, let's get together. Let's have lunch or whatever. So uh, let's pray, and, uh, and let's see what, what God does. Father, we, uh, we come to you and we ask for guidance and we ask for wisdom. We are in a particularly difficult time. And it is a moment when your children really do need to reflect you instead of us. Uh, because we don't have any answers. But you do. And they don't always make sense to us. We're very pragmatic people. We want things that will work. But you are offering us things that are Christ-like, whether or not we are, they, they do what we want them to do in this world. They are your things. They are the things of love and goodness and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I, I pray that you would fill us up with that this morning. A lot of us come from different backgrounds, a lot of us from different places. And I pray that you would give us a vision of not where we've come from or not where we hope things go, but a vision of your kingdom and your future and what you are bringing into this world. I pity you would speak through me, give me freedom, give me uh, 
the ability to say what needs to be said, and, and uh, we love you, Father, in your name. Amen. Okay, so I want to start by saying one thing very, very simple. Uh, Babylon is at work. Um, next year, we're going to go through the book of Revelation. We're going to talk a lot about Babylon. Um, but I've been spending a lot of time this week thinking about war, about the year-long war in Ukraine that's primarily being fought between two groups that claim to be Christians, killing each other. Um, I have, I, I've been reading a lot about, so far, what the eight- or nine-day-old war in Israel and Palestine, and I've come to the conclusion that I need to spend some time on it talking to you about it, because I can already see two things happening. I see uh, political leaders are trying to activate a lot of hatred within you. They're going to tell you as many horror stories as they can. They want you to hate. They want you to be angry. They want you to get violent with them. That's what they want. Um, this is how Babylon works. This is what it does. Um, I've also seen religious leaders trying to use the Bible to support killing one side over another, that one side deserves more to die than another side. And, and uh, using the words of Jesus and the apostles to make these arguments. And uh, so I want to start by saying something that I said after the Christian insurrection back in 2001. Um, and this was what made people so mad. There are, there, are, there are two nations in the Bible from beginning to end. Two nations. There is the nation of Israel, which is all who are citizens of the kingdom of God. It's not just those, you know, we've been studying the book of Romans and there's these lines in there like it's not just those born of Israel. It is all those grafted in through the work of Jesus and the apostles. It is God's people striving to be the image of God in this world, regardless of where they live. Um, Israel uh, is the main character in the Bible. Other than that, the only other nation that exists in the Bible is Babylon. And Babylon is all other nations under all other kings. All nations under all kings, according to the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, count as Babylon. If it is not Israel, it is Babylon. However, I'm going I'm to... I'm going to get more detailed about this in a minute to help this make more sense to you. But every nation, again, in the Bible that is not Israel is referred to as Babylon, especially in the book of Revelation. And when, and when the Bible mentions Israel, it's not talking about the nation state of Israel that was invented 75 years ago. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. That is not actually Israel in the Bible. That is another version of Babylon, just like Palestine, just like Rome, just like America. We are Babylon. They are Babylon. It is all Babylon. Jesus is king of his kingdom, whom he has always called Israel, which means those who struggle with God. There are two nations in the Bible, and that's it. And when, and when the Bible talks about, and you will hear over the next few months, you will hear many, many Christians say, well, the Bible says we have to support this. this. The Bible says we have to support Israel. It is not talking about any nation that exists today. That is not what it's talking about. Um, Israel refers to the people of God, all those who live lives of devotion to their creator. It does not refer to the Middle Eastern state founded in 1948 on a specific plot of land. In the coming weeks, um, there will be religious leaders using the Bible to demand support for killing one side over the other. And Babylon has already been at work drawing lines and making proclamations. They will use coercion and shame and fear. They will use mental gymnastics to tell you they, that who deserves to live and, 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 and who deserves to die and why this life is worth more than this life. But all of this, of course, has not come from the mouth of Jesus. 
Jesus would never speak to you this way. They will use churches and pastors as Babylon's mouthpiece to proclaim that we as Christians must condone more violence in order to bring peace. Of course, this is heresy. This is not how peace enters into the world. Some of you are filled with anxiety about what to think. You're afraid to talk about it. You're afraid to say the wrong thing. You're really nervous about me talking about it right now. I feel it. I can feel it coming off of you guys. Listen, that feeling of anxiety and like, what if it's, what if he takes the wrong side? What if it, that's Babylon. That feeling you're feeling is Babylon. It's Hasatan, if you were here last week. It's the Satan. That's what he does. He brings division. Makes you feel shame and fear if you don't go along with evil. That is Babylon. It is okay to ignore that feeling. And it is okay to just put your arms up and say, I don't know. All I know is I want to do the Jesus thing. And so... None of that feeling is the peace of Jesus. Jesus did not give you that anxiety. Jesus is not calling you to take a side. Jesus is not calling you to condemn anyone. Never has been. In fact, the opposite. I'm here with the difficult task of reminding you that Jesus does not take sides in any of our wars. We have forgotten how God brings peace. We have forgotten it. We don't remember now. It's been too long. There's been too many Caesars. We don't know how to bring peace anymore into this world. And there was a time when the world used to wait on a word from the church. But no longer. And why should they? We have proven ourselves incapable of of discerning the voice of Jesus over the voice of Caesar. And in recent generations, the church has become enamored with Babylon, with her power and her wealth. The glistening buildings of her cities. We are drawn to this. We want seats of power in these places. We want to rule over these places. We have learned to fawn all over the leaders of Babylon, our presidents and their congressmen and congresswomen and senators and Supreme Court justices, and we fawn all over them because we want their approval. We want their power. We want their money. We want their influence. In our love for Babylon, we have decided that the church, we have, we have, I'm sorry, we have divided the church by appealing to our Caesars. There's a book about Revelation by Dr. McKnight. And in that, he says this. He says, division violates our confession. The church transcends party and politics because, as the book of Revelation says, often, those who worship God and the Lamb are from every tribe, nation, and tongue. The church is universal. Politics and parties are local and national. Any allegiance to Caesar is nothing more than idolatrous worship. That will create division. There are Christians in Israel that have been there for 2,000 years bearing witness. There are Christians in Palestine that have been there for 2,000 years bearing witness. They are accessible. They have never been more accessible. And you can talk to them. They're not hard to find. And you can get a different opinion about what God actually might be doing in these places. Anytime Babylon is on the move, God is on the move as well. And yet, how willing are we to listen to the witness of our brothers and sisters who have been there for 2,000 years bearing witness to what has been happening and trying to do the work of Jesus to bring peace? 
suffering right alongside their Muslim brothers and sisters and their Jewish brothers and sisters the entire time. This is not a war between God's people and the heathens. This is a war between two sides who have been discipled deeply by Babylon, not God. To hate, to kill, to blame towards pride and tribalism away from love and hospitality. There is this passage in the book of Luke, chapter 19, where Jesus looks out over Israel and weeps because she doesn't remember how to make peace. Has totally forgotten how God brings peace into the world. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize it. The time of God's coming to you. Jesus laments loudly and sadly that his own tribe doesn't even understand how the peace of God enters into the world. Again, this is not modern Israel. God's own people don't understand how God works in the world. And he looks out and he just weeps over this. And I do too. And I'm sure you do too. The Israel that Jesus sees and weeps over is a people who think that God will use the ways of the world, the ways of Babylon, to make things right again. And they have bought into Babylon's lies. That war can somehow bring peace. Just one more war, we can bring peace. This will be it. The war to end all wars. Remember that joke? None of it's true. These are Caesars lying to you again and again and again and again. The violence that... That violence can somehow bring human flourishing? That the exercising, that exercising power over people, trying to coerce people and control them and use threats of violence to prop up your own laws, it's somehow going to bring about obedience? When have laws ever brought about obedience? They don't. They reveal disobedience. They believe the lie that if you want peace, you need superior firepower. That's one of Satan's best lies. I see Christians with that sticker on the back of their car sometime. The Jesus fish and then the little peace sign made out of a, a B-52 bomber. And it says, peace through superior firepower. It's a lie. It's heresy. It's literally Satan's bumper sticker that should be on Satan's car. Not ours. Like... Of course, these are all lies that, that Jesus has rebuked over and over again. If you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. If your enemy is hungry, you feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, you give them something to drink. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek, be long-suffering and be patient. That's what you sow, you shall also reap. Jesus would over and over and over and over again address the ridiculous lies that we tell each other. But we don't believe him. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. You don't win by losing. Obviously. And yet the cross. You, you can't create peace by loving your enemies. And yet Jesus did. And he did bring peace. And so. This is why the earliest Christians believed. What Jesus believed about violence. That it belongs to the old age. That is passing away. With the arrival of the kingdom of God. That it does not belong in the arsenal of the Christian. At the, at the, at the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus, the, the old age came to an end. The new age was born. The Christians believed 
that three days after Jesus had been crucified, the world was fundamentally different, and it could never go back to the way it was, ever again. Violence and war were exposed on the cross as tools of Satan, not tools of God. They, they were shown to be impotent and useless. The fear of Rome was now gone. The worst they can do is kill me, but I follow one who has risen again. No longer were the Christians afraid of violence, and no longer would they put up with it. And so the whole time, though, they're lead, that's leading up to Jesus, like before Jesus, they were very, very violent. And then suddenly, instantly, they would not take up a sword against their enemy. They wouldn't serve in the military. They wouldn't serve in the local, like, Roman police forces. They wouldn't do any of it. They would not carry a gun for the empire, because the empire is led by Caesar, who is the snake, who is a false god. And so they wouldn't do it. And the whole time leading up to Jesus, their prophets are telling them this. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. I mean, the passage we read this morning. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against a nation. Nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's like this begging. Come, please, walk in the light of the Lord. Stop walking in the light of the Caesars. It's darkness. And it's evil. Violence after Jesus ended because of the cross. Outside of the biblical account of, there's a man in, in the book of Acts named Cornelius, who was a, a, a soldier who became baptized, he and his whole family. Um, outside of that one, that man and the jailer who became a Christian, there is not a single reference in history of a Christian serving the military before 170 CE. Not one. They would not do it. Process that however you want, but that's, how, that's the truth. And when they finally did, when you finally, in about 175, 180, when you start to see a couple Christians pop up in the ancient Roman military, it never went well for them. You have this... Um, you have this church father named Hippolytus. And he writes and he says, a military man in authority must not execute anyone. If you're a follower of Jesus, disobey orders to kill, he says. And if you didn't, you were to be kicked out of the church. He said, if he is ordered, he must not carry it out. The catechumen or faithful who wants to become a soldier is to be rejected, for he has despised God. During the reign of Diocletian, there was a Roman proconsul who was traveling on a mission to recruit soldiers, and he, became, he came upon a, a 21-year-old Christian man. His name was Maximilian. And he looked at him and he said, hey, I, I, I want you to serve in the 3rd Augustan Legion. And the man stepped up and he looked at him and he said, he says, I will not. My faith forbids me to wear the seal around my neck because the seal of Christ has marked me. And he was executed instantly in front of everyone. And he knew he would be executed. And he did it anyways. It's not very pragmatic, but it's Christ-like. That's what the Christians were going for. We have an entire Christian organizations today that have no intention of becoming Christ-like because they know what it will cost them. 
And they will not wrestle with the teachings of Jesus about loving your enemies. They will not do it because of the amount of money and support they will lose. That is a revelation that they are serving Caesar, not Jesus. We even have the writings of the church father Origen, who rebuked Celsius in 248. This is 150 years later. Where he, he states plainly that where he comes from, he says, we do not fight under the emperor, although he require it. They refused. The Christians are called to a different life, a holy life. And the man wrote back, I think it was Celsius, um, and he writes back and he says, well, if this happens and all of Rome becomes Christian, then she won't have an army. And he goes, exactly. That's it. He's okay with that. Like, the old age was no longer of interest to the Christians once they saw Jesus. It was no longer of interest to them. The new age had come. The new age had broken through. And so violence, they knew, only begets more violence. War causes more war. Every time you hit me, I'm not going to hit you back less. And I'm not going to hit you back the same. I'm going to hit you back harder so you don't do it again. And what are you going to do? You're going to hit me back harder so I don't do it again. And I'm going to, guess what? We're doing it again. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse until everyone has a black eye. Until everyone is suffering. Until everyone's children are traumatized. Jesus didn't teach you any of this. Satan did. That's where you learned it. Maybe through the voice of your presidents. Maybe through the voice of your Caesars or how, whoever it is that you are following in this world. It is not Jesus. The cross, however, is the opposite. The cross is where violence comes to end. Where it is absorbed. When Jesus takes all your sin upon himself, that's what that means. This is your sin putting him on that cross. Your anger and hatred and violence. I must silence you. Everything Jesus says is disrupting my life as a powerful Roman. I must kill you. And they expect Jesus to fight back and he does not. And as he's hanging on the cross, he's offering love and forgiveness to the people who are doing these things to him. He's showing you how peace enters into the world. We refuse to listen. Instead, we take this story and say like, and now we can go to heaven when we die. No, no, no. Now you can bring it to earth. Do not ignore your responsibility in all of this. That is your cross as well. You are called to carry it. You are called to wield the cross, not the sword. Violence ends on the cross. It is absorbed. It is not returned. It was reframed, not as their subhuman scum who will get what's coming to them, but rather forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. And it's okay to watch tragedy on TV and look at it and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's true. They don't. And it's okay to say it. Not that you have any answers. I don't expect you to. Jesus does. All we can do is respond in a Christ-like way. That's all we have. Jesus weeps over those who have no idea how to bring peace into this world. He just weeps over it. Their smartest and most well-educated scholars of the land rack up five PhDs, and then you bring them all together, and you get all the smartest people in the world together. How do we take care of this? Well, first we need to go in and kill these people, and then we need to kill these people and set up these rules and laws and come down harsh on these people. So you're telling me after 200,000 years of human civilization, the best you can come up with is more killing. That's what they came up with 200,000 years ago. That's it. 
That's all we got. This is why God created a new people in this world. Because the old people refuse to understand how peace enters. The body of Christ broken and poured out. And Jesus weeps over all of it. And I always get the question, always, so what are we Christians to do in response to the likes of Hitler and Mao and Stalin and whatever wannabe dictators that are rising up in our land? What do we do when they take all the power and, and they start killing people? Well, you know what? Like, should we, should we let the madmen and the tyrants rise and conquer? What about if someone is, is a threat to your family? What would you do? I would point out for you that the only reason that madmen and tyrants like Hitler were able to flourish in the first place is because the church did nothing and allowed it and supported it. And so when war comes to our lands, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, we probably easily could have gone against it and just said no and taken no part in it. But I'm going to say it was probably propped up by Christians ourselves when it comes. Our track record is not very good lately. They will rise up again. I mean, there's 2.2 billion Christians in the world. What if we actually all started listening to Jesus and doing what Jesus said? I, I, I'm pretty sure these wars would lessen significantly when Christians stop taking part in them. I think we should be in constant prayer for what God would have us to do in the most difficult moments of our lives. Most importantly, we must hold on to love for our enemies. We must. We must make space for this. In our confrontations against evil, we should pray that we never go farther than love would ever allow, even for our enemies. The real answer is that we need peaceful churches everywhere. We need peaceful churches. Not churches doing the work of Babylon to stoke, to, to stoke fear and division and anger and hatred in their people towards those evil ones out there. I have no condemnation because I know, born in the right place at the right time, I would be in that. But God has seen fit to put me here and open my eyes to the things that he has for me. And it's a huge blessing, and none of it is my fault. And it's all a gift of God. And so I don't have condemnation for anyone. All I have is love and a prayer for deep understanding. That nothing they are doing will make anything right again. And it will only make it worse. Unless it is done with love and compassion and mercy. Unless it is done with the fruits of the Spirit. We need churches to stop practicing empire building. Trying to make their name great. Trying to stockpile money. And plant church after church after church of their own image. Over and over and over. Like colonizers taking over a whole area. We didn't learn this from Jesus either. We learned this directly from Caesar. We need to bravely fund and plant new churches in places where violence is growing. Brave Christians who see the path of peace and who are willing to and, and, and open to being broken and poured out so that peace can be established in these places. And we need to find people that are doing this work and we need to support them with whatever they need. 
You know, we need to rethink and repent of theologies that promote any kind of violence at all. Violent uh, theologies that elevate you above others instead of lowering you below others. The cross is not God's act of violence. It is our act of violence against God. And it is God's perfect display of forgiving love in the face of complete horror. The cross is also our calling on how we are to live. There's this post I saw earlier by Shane Claiborne. And this is going to be the last thing. I've been sick, and it's hard for me to stay focused for too long on anything. <laughs> um, but I want to work through this with you. Because for those of you who are trying to figure out how am I to respond, how am I to think, how, what am I supposed to say, how, am I, how can I pray, who am I praying for, what am I doing? Let us ask ourselves and our God, what are the things that help lead to peace? Ask yourself, what does love require of us at such a time as this? Ask yourself, what does it look like to resist injustice without mirroring injustice? What does it look like to stand against terror without becoming terrible? And what does it look like to choose the way of the cross rather than the sword and to follow the enemy-loving Jesus, the Prince of Peace? I want to end with one. I told you it would be short. I'm going to end with one specific line that I believe more than anything. Not one single person has to die for God's will to go forward. Not one single person needs to be shot or gassed or bombed or killed or starved. Not one person needs to die for God's work to be done in this world. And anyone telling you otherwise is the voice of Babylon whispering right into your ear. Silence them. Look them in the eye and say, I'm sorry, I'm following Jesus. You don't have to know all the answers. But we must be faithful. Otherwise, what are we doing? If we are offering the same answers that everyone else out there is offering, there is no point to Jesus. There's no point. Jesus is another way. He's a better way. He's a different way. He's a holy. Holy, the word, holy is the word hagios, which just means simply different. It means weird. Jesus is the weird way. We are called to live this way, go that way. And there are so many Christians who are the... There are so many Christians who following Jesus doesn't make sense to them. How did we get here? And so I'm going to spend the week in prayer over all of you guys. That you will be impervious to the work of Babylon in your life that you will not let them make you hate people more, that every time Babylon and the Satan whispers into your ears through a president, through a leader somewhere, that you will push back and you will say, get thee hence from me, Satan. Use the words of Jesus to Peter, right? Get away from me, Satan. Be careful saying that to your parents. <laughs> get away. Get away. Like, don't cause more division. But listen, don't go along with it. Just don't go along with it. Don't. And don't be afraid to not go along with it. Let them judge you. Let them call you part of the problem. Let them say you're in the way. Look them in the eye and say, good. 
I will always do everything I can to be in your way if this is what you're doing. I will always be in the way. I will always disrupt. You will not just easily go and stoke violence against the image of Christ in my brothers and sisters around the world. Don't take part in it. Father, please. Please guide us. I pray that you would begin to show yourself, show your ways, show the complete uselessness of the ways of these empires of the world, and show your path glorious and shining and beautiful. Our lives are so short. I pray that what what little life that we have, what small little short lives that we have, would be just reflections of you. That we would be little Jesuses, little Christs in this world that they know they cannot count on for our support, but they can always count on for our love and our graciousness and our mercy and our forgiveness. And they can trust that we are not condemning them, but calling them to receive real love that is being offered. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Would you guys stand with me and, and let's do the Lord's Prayer, shall we? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Love you all. I hope you receive that well. Gracious with you, be gracious with me, and uh, God bless you.